My name's Clover, and we need to talk about eco-anxiety. Some of you may be wondering what eco-anxiety even is, while others may be struggling with it right now. This podcast is for both of you. For those curious listeners who want to understand the impacts of climate change on our mental health, this podcast is your crash course. Each week on the show, we'll be exploring a different face of the climate crisis, from the food we eat, to our relationship with media, our addiction to fossil fuels, and everything in between. I'll be speaking to leading experts and global companies about challenges and solutions. You'll also hear from young people around the world who feel eco-anxious, and hear from our resident psychotherapist, Caroline Hickman, about how to navigate some of these feelings. And for those of you who feel eco-anxious right now, I'm here to tell you that you are not alone. And far from being a sign of weakness, your eco-anxiety is totally normal. In fact, it's a sign of your empathy, proof that you are awake to the issues. I believe that talking about our eco-anxiety is the first step to turning it into agency, community, and vision. So let's talk about eco-anxiety. Today's episode is the first of the season, and it's about energy and fossil fuels. Recording this, it is summer in London. I can hear the traffic outside, smell the exhaust through the window. I have the AC running. In my house, I can count 22 light bulbs, a fridge, a freezer, dishwasher, washing machine, toaster, and the list goes on. Everywhere I turn, I see energy. You are probably listening to this right now on your phone or computer. Maybe you have your lamp on. More often than not, the thing that keeps these machines ticking is fossil fuels. The truth is we are addicted to fossil fuels and they're destroying the planet. But are you and I to blame? Later in the show, I will be speaking to the head of sustainability at Ovo Energy about how business needs to lead the way. But first, I wanted to learn more from someone taking on the fossil fuel giants. I reached out to my friend Anissa Khan, who works at environmental nonprofit Oil Change International. Anissa, take it away. My name is Anissa Khan. I am 25 years old and I'm currently living in London, in England. I'm originally from India and I grew up in Oman in the Middle East. I work for an environmental nonprofit called Oil Change International and we work on exposing the cost of fossil fuels on both people and the planet. And what was your personal catalyst? for becoming a climate justice activist. I was born in India, but I was raised in the Middle East in Oman. And when I was growing up, the fossil fuel industry was very present in my life. Oil was 10 times cheaper than drinking water. And, you know, every day we would learn about environmental problems in school. But I was very much told, you know, if you recycle, if you use the right materials, if you cycle to school, all these things like you're going to save the planet but we never actually questioned the role of the fossil fuel industry and the dirty energy industry in, in climate change and emissions. 
things, right? It was very much telling people to take on individual action versus questioning the broader systems of capitalism and production and all of these other things. And at the same time, my family's from India. They still live in India right now in Chennai, which is on the southeast coast and, and is in a state that is constantly ravaged by droughts and floods. And the injustice of the climate crisis is why I'm here. It's just so obvious to me that wealthy countries, countries in the global north, the fossil fuel industry and corporations are very much responsible for the climate crisis. But the people who are bearing its burden are people like my family, people like my friends in India, it's young people, women, people of color and indigenous people. And so it feels very important to work on it, not just for my own lived experience, but for the world that I want to build and believe in. Looking at our production of energy as the leading driver of the climate crisis, what is broken with this current system? The reason the climate crisis is happening, to me, the fossil fuel industry lies at the root of that. Fossil fuel production, consumption, burning. And I think that these extractive processes have been happening for decades. And at the same time, the fossil fuel industry has been denying its impact on the climate crisis for decades. So I think that corporations like Shell, BP, Exxon, etc. have spent millions of dollars denying the climate crisis and are now showing up saying, we believe in the climate crisis, we're going to reduce our emissions, we're going to offset by paying somebody on the other side of the world to reduce their emissions while we continue amping up our fossil fuel production, when science and equity are continuing to tell us that to stay under 1.5 degrees of warming, which is an absolute tipping point for people on the planet, we need to decarbonize our economies by the middle of this century, at the latest. And the oil industry and the, you know, the fossil fuel industry is currently trying to increase that instead of decreasing that by making excuses and saying there's, you know, ways to suck carbon out of the sky and put it in the ground. You know, there's all of these alternative yet unproven and expensive procedures that they're marketing to people falsely instead of attacking what lies at the core of it, which is that the fossil fuel industry should not be allowed to continue business as usual and they should not be allowed to continue licensing and produce and finding loopholes and ways to continue doing that while pretending to address the climate crisis. So what the fossil fuel industry to me is doing right now is dangerously distracting people. And I think it comes down to a fundamental difference in world vision. People who are interested in the fossil fuel industry continuing are looking at it from a point of profit, short-term satisfaction and growth versus long-term community and love and hopefulness. And, you know, the fossil fuel industry is extremely rich, powerful, well-connected to government in a way that is overwhelming and also why they can afford to constantly lie to people. I heard this in a conversation recently where an energy executive was saying, we don't have the technologies to deliver a green transition. We don't have the infrastructure that we need to do any of these things. So it's not really on us. It's on those other players. What would your response to that be? They're doing this thing where they're like, there will be technology to suck carbon out of the sky, but there's no technology for renewable energy, which makes no sense, right? Like, that's just not how things are working right now. There's a couple of narratives that the fossil fuel industry uses to counter um, anybody trying to move forward any kind of climate justice policy. And what they'll say is jobs is the problem. We're going to lose a number of jobs. People are going to lose a lot of income. And I think that's a super inflated narrative 
narrative, there's so much potential and possibility for people to be retrained, to have a transition, a just transition for workers and communities who are dependent on the fossil fuel industry that is sponsored by the state, that is sponsored by reparations from the fossil fuel industry. Like there is money in the world. The governments have spent $13 trillion bailing out the banks in the financial crisis. There is money for the climate crisis. They're just not bringing it out. There's a possibility for 1 million climate jobs in the UK. Like these things exist. It's more of are we willing to be brave enough to take that step? And then the other thing the fossil fuel industry brings up is that renewable energy is not going to be able to get us through our lifestyles. One, the lifestyles that we lead are problematic, all of us in some ways, right? The way that we're consuming, etc. But it's also what's being marketed to us by people with a large amount of money. And two, renewables are much further ahead than what the fossil fuel industry pretends they are. And I think that there is a possibility to have good renewable energy, to have renewable energy on days when the sun isn't shining, the wind isn't blowing, we have incredible battery storage nowadays for things like that. And if we think about the role of companies and businesses, what does it look like for them to transition to carbon neutrality? And critically, how do companies do this when they're beholden to their shareholders? When I hear people saying things like, how, how do these big companies transition? They're going to lose a profit. Their you know, stakeholders are going to be upset. And I'm like, well, what about the millions of people who are actually going to be dead? You know, to me, thinking about this economically and weighing the price of a life against anything else is a joke. And I think this is why it's really important that the state, that governments are leading on this. I don't think that corporations are going to bring us the solutions. It's very much like state-led progressive policies that are created from the grassroots level up. Like when we think about a Green New Deal, for example. What will it take for us to actually deliver that green future? The seed that it starts with is believing in a transformational change that's possible across our energy systems and across our lives in many different ways. And I think that's where it starts. When I think about the fact that we've put a person on the moon... To me, it's like, okay, well, then this is just a question of what is our willingness to do it? So the things that the Green New Deal is asking for are not magnificently radical. They're saying we need to decarbonize our economy. We need to move away from fossil fuels. We want to provide housing for people in a way that is safe, affordable, sustainable. We want everybody to have access to healthcare, education, all of these welfare policies, basically. And I think that it would be a shame if we didn't take this chance to actually rethink the way that we live our lives. And I think that there is real solutions that exist and have existed for decades amongst, you know, grassroots movements, indigenous peoples who have had ways of life that are sustainable, that are cyclical, that are reciprocal to the world that we live in versus just extractive, which is what we're doing right now. There's a lot to learn from elders, from communities who have been surviving on this planet for a very, very long time. There's a lot of questions, but there's also answers. Is eco-anxiety something that you have experienced personally? It's hella real. Yes. <laughs> it's something I sit with every day. When I leave the house, sometimes I'll see people having a good time and I'm like, you don't even know what's happening. Like, you don't know what's coming. And, you know, to me, one of the most like important things in my life or the thing that I feel most excited about is being a mother and knowing what I know has 
definitely been really difficult and has impacted my thoughts on it and my feelings around it on a more positive note i was talking to a friend about this and i said thing i want the most is to be a mother but i don't want to bring my little brown child like into a climate crisis world and i was telling my friend i was like i'm really stressed they said well then why do you do what you do why do you fight for people why do you fight for your community for your family if you're not going to fight for yourself and the things that you want in your life and the things that you want in the future i think this person was very right like why do i do the things that i do why do i why do i live the life i live if not for the things that i care about and want to build with the people i love and i think that's something really important to keep in mind and the other thing that keeps me going is the elders in the climate movement, people who have been doing this work for much longer than I am and who show up still every day, people who like have family members who have been murdered because they've been protesting against industry. Like being an activist in some parts of the world is a real risk to your life, you know, and there's people who still do it. So to me, it's like, I don't have any reason not to. I learned so much chatting to Anissa. Something I really related to was feeling torn between wanting to live a simple life while also feeling the urge to grab random people by the shoulders and shake them awake to this crisis. I wanted to learn if there were others like Anissa and me struggling with their ego anxiety about energy and the climate crisis. So I put a call out to young people around the world. Here is what they had to say. My name is Rhiannon Osborne. I currently live in Cambridge and I am 23 years old. I think my relationship to energy and fossil fuels is very much shaped by the health community as a medical student and as a future doctor and also someone who cares deeply about the concept of health justice, which is everyone having an equitable chance and even you know, being healthy and not having it destroyed by factors outside of their control. And I think the thing that really makes me most frustrated through this lens is that we're still choosing to do this. In the health community, we stop the packer industry from coming to the talks about lung cancer and we're, yet we're still allowing huge multinational fossil fuel companies to go to COP26 and have a huge amount of influence over it. And so that does make me feel eco-anxious but actually what makes me feel a lot better than that is the idea of green energy and the huge benefit it has for health and equality and justice. My name is Eduardo Segato Figueroa. I'm originally from Italy and I'm 30 years old. I was born on a small town on the coast of Tuscany in Italy. This small village on this peninsula is surrounded by two lakes and then around the lakes there's the Mediterranean Sea. So we're right on the water. And when I started learning about climate change, I saw that places like ours are going to be non-existent at one point. Fossil fuels make me feel a lot of eco-anxiety just because it's almost like I'm in danger whenever I use something, whenever I'm driving a car that is not electric or hybrid. Whenever I leave the light on, I'm extremely self-aware. I would say that eco-anxiety is for me is more about the small things rather than the global catastrophe aspect. This is Alina Karim. I am based in the city of Lahore in the country Pakistan and I am 34 years old. The most direct change has been the increase in smog in my city Lahore. The air quality has become so low that there are days when everything seems to be under a haze. It made us use masks even before the COVID came up and we are now in an even more vulnerable position with respect to allergies and viral infections. 
I would refer to eco-anxiety as a feeling that our generation will damage the climate to the extent that future generations will have to live with a compromised lifestyle. Not having pure air to breathe in and clean water to drink, that's actually my worst fear. My name is Tabitha Bradley, from Australia but currently living in the Netherlands, and I am 22 years old. The eco-anxiety I feel regarding energy and fossil fuel use stems from how trapped I feel that we are in a cycle of using fossil fuels but knowing they'll be depleted one day, and hoping that renewable energy sources will just be set up by this time. At the same time, we rely on fossil fuels to run and manufacture the technology and infrastructure required to harness renewable energy resources. In an optimistic note, I'm lucky enough to live in a country, the Netherlands, which is seriously making plans and changes to create a circular economy. This is one wherein there's no waste or excess production, so it's sort of a closed loop. And the efforts are starting at a provincial level, but it is a radical proposition which could have huge and far-reaching positive effects. We've just heard from young people for whom climate change, including air pollution and flooding, is already their lived experience. I want to figure out how to navigate some of these feelings, so I've reached out to my friend Caroline Hickman to unpack what we've just heard. Caroline is a psychotherapist from the University of Bath, who has spent years researching children and young people's relationships with nature and their feelings about the climate and ecological crisis. She's spoken to young people in the UK, the Maldives, the South Pacific, and other communities already affected by rising sea levels. I was trying to make sense of that sense of helplessness. I think part of that helplessness comes over the fact that we've known about this for decades and failed to act. We declare a climate emergency here in the UK. We've got COP here later in the year, and recently there was another argument about opening another coal mine in Cumbria. There is something inhumane about this. In the newspaper today, child visits to GPs saw after the surge in pollution within a week of raised air pollution. In the recordings we've just listened to, in Pakistan, the increase of smog in Lahore, that people were using masks before COVID. Mm. It's transparent. We know this is happening. We've got the evidence. But we're relatively powerless to stop them. We're relatively powerless to take action. And that's back to... You called it an addiction to the energy systems. An addiction, of course, is dependency. My approach to thinking about addiction is as soon as you start to talk with somebody who's addicted or dependent about them giving up that thing, it triggers quite a lot of anxiety. And what you do is you hang on to the thing more tightly because you've got this projection onto the thing that it will make you happy and often that it's your best friend. And we've got that relationship with energy that it is the best thing ever. It gives us so much. And that's why we see often these narratives about having to give up flying, having to give up driving. If you're in that addictive dependent relationship, you have a sense of not being able to cope without that thing. So the way I approach that is to talk about changing the relationship with the thing itself. So I would say when it comes to fossil fuels, we need to change our relationship with fossil fuels. And instead of seeing them as something that we desperately don't want to give up, we've got to start to perceive them as an unhealthy relationship attached to something that ultimately will destroy us. If we were able to use fossil fuels in moderation, it might not have been quite such a disaster. But it's the fact that we use them so excessively that's the biggest problem. But I always try and change people's relationships 
relationship with the thing, try and encourage people to then look for something else that gives them what the thing gives them in a nicer way. So if drinking alcohol relaxes you, makes you more sociable, gives you confidence, and that's why you don't want to give up alcohol, but you've got to because of your health, then find other things that relax you and give you confidence, which are not painful to you, and develop those before you reduce the alcohol. So you replace it with something healthy first. If someone's drowning and they're clutching a twig and you say, let go of the twig because here's this lovely life raft. They're not going to let go of the twig until the life raft is there. So we've got to get the alternatives in and then people will be happy to let go of the things that are hurting both themselves and the environment. And we need to keep in mind that the Green New Deal is not enough. It's a start. When people talk about it as though this is the solution, it's concerning because it's the beginning of a solution. It's absolutely going in the right direction, but it's not enough on its own. It's that dependent relationship with systems that are inherently destructive to the earth, to other people, to other animals. It's the dependency on that system that needs to be addressed. This dominant philosophy of extraction as opposed to conservation will be lethal if we don't address that. Mm. I was just looking for something to read to you. This is from one of my favorite books. He says, ours is the last generation that will have the choice of wilderness, clean air, abundant wildlife and expansive forests. The crisis is that severe. This was published in 1991, but these ideas were around in the 60s and 70s, and they have come up with a list of things that are important for us to do. And one of them is to have a lack of desire to gain credibility or legitimacy with the gang of thugs running human civilization. So we've got to say, well, what else can we do? Because yes, we can take individual action, it's always of value, but it isn't going to resolve the bigger scale problem. We can become activists, we can challenge these companies, but again, that feels very small. We can cut through the illusion and the lies, and I think call it out, and call it out as gaslighting, and greenwashing, and grooming, and I think frame it as criminal behavior, rather than accidental. And I think we have to challenge that dependency. So I think when we're struggling to take effective, powerful, empowered action, externally. We can continue to do that, but we also can make internal changes. We can shift and change the way we feel. We can challenge that paralysis, that hopelessness, and both recognize those small things that we do are some value whilst trying to organize systemically to challenge things more broadly, more globally. And I think hold the tension of those things and not collapse into the hopelessness. I particularly liked how Caroline broke down our relationship to fossil fuels through the lens of addiction. I think this is honestly a pretty fair assessment. I want to try what Caroline suggested, trusting my instincts and not being influenced by the judgment of the gang of thugs, as she put it. So I feel like the only thing left to do now is speak to a company, not one from that top 100 most wanted list, but a company trying to lead with the solutions. I invited Kate Weinberg from Ovo Energy to speak. Before diving in, 
here's the DL from OVO. OVO is a green energy supplier on a mission to help its members kick carbon from their homes. Not only is OVO Energy committed to being a net zero carbon company by 2030, at the same time, it's aiming to halve its members' total carbon footprints. These are massive goals that lie at the heart of its 10-year business strategy, Plan Zero. There's already a collective of more than a million planet-loving OVO members helping drive that change, but its aim is to bring low-carbon tech to more than 5 million homes. And that that can only be a good thing for our planet. If you want to find out more, you can head to www.ovo.com forward slash plan zero. Now, I want to hear from Kate, OVO Sustainability Director, to understand if and how OVO is truly leading with the solution. My name is Kate Weinberg. I'm Director of Sustainability at OVO. OVO is a group of companies all focused on the energy transition. I joined OVO about three years ago to set up a sustainability function. And my role is really about driving positive impact for OVO. So that's not just for our shareholders, as is usually the way in business, but for our broader stakeholders, you know, profit as well as planet and people. So I'd love to hear from you, your understanding of the problem at large. The scale of change that needs to happen globally is so huge. So for me, it's easier to sort of bring it down a level and say, well, let's look at the UK. So if you look at the UK, a country that sparked the Industrial Revolution, was responsible for so much development and progress. Fossil fuels are bad, we know that, but they sparked such extraordinary progress around the world and energy was behind that. Now we're moving into a new phase where it's, okay, we've learned our lesson. We can't use those fossil fuels. We're still all about progress as human nature. So how can we do that differently? And then you start to look at this energy transition that we're already in, right? Because it's not a challenge that hasn't already sort of started. That's something we all forget. Reading the Times this morning, big headline saying Britain is halfway to its carbon neutral by 2050 target. That's amazing. And a large part of that is energy. So 30 years ago, Britain's electricity was powered by coal. Last year, I think it was 1.6% coal and the rest a mix of renewables and nuclear. So this huge challenge, when you break it down into its component parts, suddenly feels a bit more hopeful. And why can't we sustain our global development and growth on fossil fuels? Fossil fuels are compacted trees and organic matter buried underground for years, centuries, millennia, and packed full of carbon. So huge amount of energy there, but that carbon reacts and produces carbon dioxide when it burns. And that carbon dioxide goes into the atmosphere. All those molecules act like little radiators and you get what is known as the greenhouse effect, where we're trapping all of that heat from the sun rather than letting some of it go. I think something else we forget is that carbon isn't all bad. We have to have carbon in the atmosphere to regulate temperature. It's just that the rate of change that we have been putting it into the atmosphere is unsustainable for human life. And why do renewables serve as a solution? Because they take away that carbon in large part. You know, we have all of this energy in the planet. So our weather systems, the wind, tidal power, wave power, geothermal power underground, solar energy, that's free energy with no carbon impact at all. And renewables can channel that energy and turn it into energy that we can use. So into electricity or, or heat primarily. There's a lot of confusion around what is a clean source of energy, what is a dirty source of energy. And there's so much talk around transitionary fuels and transitionary sources of energy. Could you give us a little bit more perspective on that space? 
spectrum? Like, what is the stuff that we need to let go of immediately? What's the ideal that we're working toward? And what does that kind of messy in between look like? So coal is the worst culprit. It is the dirtiest. It's not very efficient. The amount of energy that we get from burning a ton of coal is not a great deal. A lot of it gets lost. There are far more efficient sources of energy and they are cleaner. So what does cleaner mean? Usually it's in relation to the, what we call the carbon intensity. So you'll get a kilowatt hour of electricity, that's its unit. And the amount of carbon that has created that kilowatt hour will differ depending on the source of the energy. So if you're looking at, for example, renewable electricity sourced from solar or wind, it's significantly less carbon intensive than coal powered energy. Where it gets tricky is where you're looking at what they call the transition fuels. So we're not in a position, we don't have enough renewables and our system isn't set up to deal with 100% renewables yet. What we can do is wean ourselves off coal and move on to the transition fuel, which is gas. This is where it gets difficult because gas is still a fossil fuel. It's still got emissions associated. But we also, particularly in the UK, want to stay warm in winter. So if 80% of the UK has gas-powered central heating, how do we suddenly change that? We just don't really have a scalable alternative at the moment. And this is one of the big challenges that OVO was working on, the decarbonisation of heat. You know, electricity, as I said, we're getting there. The problem is largely cracked, more and more renewables, barely any coal anymore. It's well on its way to being a clean electricity grid. Whereas the way that we heat our homes is much more difficult. And heating accounts for about 13 to 14% of the UK's emissions. So it's a huge chunk. Some of the technologies that we're looking at, like hydrogen, aren't going to be commercially available for another decade. So what can we do in the meantime? One of the things that we're doing is focusing on electric heat. So we have just launched one of the, the largest zero carbon heat trial in the UK where we're putting heat pumps and thermal batteries into people's homes. So it's expensive. It's about £15,000 worth of tech in at least 70 homes. But the heat generated from that will be a lot cheaper for people than currently is on gas. So we're testing these technologies. They're all quite new, but it's one of the ways that we can wean ourselves off gas and therefore have a huge impact on reducing emissions. How do we transition at the pace and scale required when we have scientists telling us that we have 10 years to dramatically change our energy system? How do we radically turn up the dial? You said there are barriers to that transition. What are those barriers? I mean, there are barriers on every front, really. So economic a lot of this stuff isn't cheap. There are perverse incentives. We subsidize the wrong things. So there's lots of strange policy mechanisms we should change. On a human level, mainstream society has only just woken up to the fact that climate change is a very real problem in the last five years, based on my experience. Competing priorities. We've just had a year of dealing with coronavirus. Other countries in the world are just trying to develop. Why should we stop them using coal to do that when the West has? You get into all sorts of major societal challenges when you look at the barriers to this. I think you just have to break it down to its component parts because it's just too big. Otherwise, you're looking at the most complex systemic challenge humanity's ever faced. So you break it down and you look at each various part and you look at what you can do. I think that's the only way that we ever really overcome these barriers. And to that point, is there a responsibility of 
companies who are at the front of the race, like Ovo, to really put the pressure on the oil and gas manufacturers to be more sustainable and to take up the same mission. Yes, I think there's a real responsibility on all businesses to look at their supply chains. We get gas that comes out of the ground and it has fossil fuels associated. So how can we engage with our suppliers to make sure that they are transitioning their own businesses away from gas and looking at alternatives? You know, and they are starting. And we are doing more and more advocacy um, around climate change. So we are engaging with our suppliers much more. We've put in place various policies and, and codes that they need to sign up to to show they are also thinking about this. We're working with the government on a number of different angles around both the decarbonisation of heat and the flexibility of the electricity grid. So how, how can you make the grid withstand renewables when they're um, intermittent? You know, sometimes you have the sun, sometimes you don't. So how do you keep supplying electricity when your sources come and go like that? So we are more and more using our voice. That was one of the aims that we've put in Plan Zero. And that is about a number of things, collaboration and partnership and calling for change. I'd love to hear as a growing company, which employs a lot of young people, what do you feel is the general sentiment within your organization? Do, do people feel empowered to be part of the solution? And to that, have you witnessed a level of eco-anxiety in the people that you work with day in, day out? I feel like that myself. I have to manage what I, for example, watch. My husband will want to watch climate change documentaries in the evening. And I sometimes I'm like, I can't because my days are spent thinking about this, reading the reports, delving into the detail. And sometimes in the evening, I need really lighthearted nonsense to not drown in the despair of it all. So I totally appreciate this fear that, that is there and the growing condition of, of eco-anxiety. So much so that when we were developing Plan Zero, one of the most important things for me was the tone of it, the framing of it. It had to be optimistic. It wasn't that we tried to put a spin on things. It was because I think we don't talk enough about the positive. So we very much focus on the optimism and the hope that I think we should all have to temper that anxiety. Having said that, I don't think the eco-anxiety is such a bad thing. I don't think people should retreat from it. It's a sign of connection to the planet. It's a sign of connection to your fellow human beings and that you feel suffering. And I think that's a good thing. You know, it, it's what separates us from robots. And if you have that feeling, it means you will try to change things. You've got this movement of young people stepping up, like yourself, saying, what's going to happen? And it certainly should not be young people's responsibility. I'm not saying that at all. But it is an extraordinary force for change and for good that is making my generation and the generation above me step up and take change. It is sad that it's got to this point, but it is hopeful. However, to be anxious and to fear for your future is awful. And so that's where it comes to the approach that we've taken it over, which is how do you change that eco-anxiety into eco-hope? You become what you see. We all need inspiration. And if we start to think of our future as this green industrial revolution, rather than apocalyptic doom and gloom, you start to feel more empowered that you can get there. It's so much more exciting and energizing. Not saying we sugarcoat it, but you can paint a realistic picture of a hopeful future. There are no more excuses anymore not to deal with climate change. 
I feel that Kate's energy is pretty contagious, particularly when she speaks about the green industrial revolution. Hearing this from Anissa too, it's becoming more and more clear where we need to go. But, and there is a but, I still feel that niggling fear in the back of my mind. Are we getting there fast enough? I still feel eco-anxious, but perhaps a little more determined after the conversations in today's episode. I couldn't agree more with Kate's framing of eco-anxiety. The fact that the rise of eco-anxiety, of young people speaking out, is an extraordinary force for change. I felt this in the voices we heard at the start of this episode. The most important thing I'll be taking forward is Caroline's advice to hold the tension. It's clear from today's conversations that on the one hand, there is progress being made, while on the other, we're a society clutching on to ancient history. I want to be hopeful. And at the same time, I don't want to deceive myself like the fossil fuel giants have deceived us all for decades. I think the only way I can continue to make sense of this is to hold the tension in myself. Tension between the grief I feel toward the nature and people that have already been taken by the climate crisis, the anger toward fossil giants who continue to peddle the problem, but also the hope I feel talking to trailblazers like Anissa, who remind me why we fight, or even leaders like Kate, who show that another form of business is possible. Next week on the show, we will be discussing media. We have amazing conversations lined up. You'll hear from Jack Harris, influencer, co-founder of Earthrise Studio, filmmaker, and climate storyteller. You'll also hear from Stephen Dunbar-Johnson, president international of the New York Times Company. And as always, you'll be hearing from more young voices, our resident psychotherapist, and me, your host, Clover Hogan. See you there. How did today's episode make you feel? Let us know by heading over to Force of Nature's Instagram at forceofnature.xyz and dropping us a comment or DM. We've also partnered with Anissa's organization, Oil Change International, to bring you some pretty epic content on the gram. Be sure to head over there and join the conversation. We also have an exciting invitation. On October 9th, we're hosting a panel session featuring young trailblazers from the podcast. For more info, head to forceofnature.xyz forward slash podcast. If you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, you know what to do. This podcast was brought to you by Force of Nature and One Fine Play. From One Fine Play, James Bishop is the executive producer. Kazra Feruzia is the editor and producer. Connor Foley is the producer and researcher with additional creative support from Selena Christofidis. Running Force of Nature takes a village and would not be possible without Phoebe Hansen, Kathleen Hamilton, Alejandra Arias, Sasha Wright, Julia Sams, Vida Han, and Deneb Jardin. As a reminder, if you're feeling particularly overwhelmed by eco-anxiety, you can find a whole host of resources to support you at forceofnature.xyz. Additionally, if you are struggling with your mental health, please consult a medical professional. 